the days I allowed myself to feel absolved by Jeff's forgiveness of, or at least ambivalence toward, my sins. I was starting to feel less like a villain and more like a version of myself from the recent past, one who would snap out of such an intense inward collapse into themselves that they'd look around at the external world around them and realize they had no idea where they were or how they got there, and would then have to pick their way back with great trepidation to somewhere that felt familiar again. I was about ready to shake the notebook and its hold on me. I could make things right and move forward without it with just a few steps, and yet, here I am on a park bench, firmly rooted to the wood, seemingly unable to lift myself out of it to begin. Because what was left for me after this was over, those words I said to Jeff weren't merely the drunken ramblings of a girl who no longer controlled what was falling out of her mouth. Was I simply to return to a life of lying around my apartment, occasionally half-heartedly working as an illustrator and telling myself I was going to become something someday? Was that really all there is for me? I've made so many things that should have been impossible happen with the notebook, but applying that same kind of motivation to my own life exhausts me at only the thought. Should I allow myself to continue for the sake of delaying the inevitable? Don't we all deserve a little adventure? But no. With great effort, I managed to push myself off the bench. It's time to finish this. I'm back in Bushwick, and I've been staring in the direction of Alana's shop for the past hour. A customer has just exited, and I'm fairly certain that if I were to go in there now, we'd be alone. I hurry down the two blocks before I can change my mind and push open the door, bells tinkling. Alana's at the counter, and she looks up at me as I enter the room. I don't think she recognizes me at first, but after our eyes meet for a few moments, she smiles and says, Welcome back. I nod my hello and pretend to browse an aisle of candles, picking them up and smelling them and putting them down, and rubbing my thumbs carefully over the symbols that have been etched into a few of them. I glance back at Alana to see if she's watching me, but she's bent back down over her book. I snake back up the next aisle, this one of crystals, squinting my eyes at the index cards describing what each one's powers are in Alana's narrow, loopy handwriting. When I reach the end and look towards the register again, this time I find that she's looking back. She has a bemused expression on her face, and I feel that she's looking right through me. I clear my throat as I step up to the counter, and she closes her book. Hi, um, I was hoping you could help me again, only in a different way this time. I... I have something I need to tell you. Okay. Well, when I was here the last time and you did that reading for me, that wasn't exactly legitimate. I'm not Gail's granddaughter. I never even met her. Not to be cliche, but I know. Oh, (laughs) right. Of course. When Gail came to me, she told me you were an intruder's. But I didn't get the sense that you were a malevolent one, so I decided to proceed anyway. Well, I'm glad I don't come off as malevolent, I guess. So she didn't... she didn't seem angry with me? I wouldn't say angry, no. More annoyed, or just generally wanting to let me know you weren't who you said you were. Okay, well... I wanted to come back here to explain myself. See, the reason I ended up with Gail's scarf is, well, 
I found this notebook in the library. It had a list of names in it, and Gail's was one of them. I was tracking down as many people on the list as I could to try and figure out how they belonged together. When I went to try and meet Gail, I found out that she had just died, and I managed to be able to get into her house and I started looking around. And it was there that I figured out that everyone on the list was related to each other in some way. I was able to piece it together bit by bit, this crazy family tree. The thing is, you were on the list too. That's why I came here. I wasn't sure if I believed that you could actually talk to Gail, no offense, but I knew it would be a good reason to try and get to know you and have better insight as to maybe why the list was now that I knew what it was. Alana's frown grows deeper as she listens. So you're saying Gail and I are related? Yes. But I don't understand. If we're related, why didn't she tell me when she came to me? Well, you're related by a stretch. She was your uncle's mother-in-law, who was more or less estranged from her kids by the time they were adults. You know how that goes. Um, but she, maybe she didn't even know you were related. I guess maybe that's why she was so chatty, even when she knew she was present for a bogus reading. Anyway, I think I've finally gotten all the answers I've been looking for from the list, and now I think the last thing I need to do is try and figure out whose notebook it is. They lost it, and if I return it to them with all this new information I filled in for them and helped them find, it'll all be over. So, I was thinking, maybe you could help me figure that out. If I show you the list, maybe you'll see some clue that I missed, since you actually kind of know these people. Or, maybe you could use your whatever you have to figure it out somehow. Well, let's start with seeing the list. She reaches her hand across the counter and does the gimme motion. She's difficult to read, and I can't tell if she's angry with me or intrigued. I take the notebook out of my bag and place it into her hand with the same level of anxiety I imagine a new mother must feel when she's handing her baby off to a stranger for the first time. I watch as she flips through the pages, then carefully reads each one. This is my family. She shakes her head and kneels down, rising up again with several sheets of paper and a pen in hand. She starts diagramming the names, scribbling things out and marking connections with arrows and names with stars and underlining relationships. She has to do it over a few times, but finally, she seems satisfied and studies the map in front of her. I watch her, chewing my lip in anticipation. You know, it's a little weird that Rachel's husband isn't in here. How did you know she was married? Was it... are you... No, no, it's because I know Richard. That prick. Oh, right. I guess he'd be your uncle. I know he is technically, but I'd never call him my uncle. I just think it's interesting that in a list that goes all the way back to Europe, that a husband who's alive and well and easy to find wouldn't be part of the list. I stare blankly at Alana, trying to follow. What I'm saying is, this list has this sense of discovery to it. This person was trying to track these people down before you, trying to figure out who they were. It's all this scattershot information jotted down as they were finding it. So maybe the reason why Richard wasn't on the list was that he was already found. Whoever wrote 
the list already knew Richard. There was no reason to include him. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but I'm just not sure who would know Richard but not know any of these other people. Well, perhaps you picked up on the tinge of anger in my voice at his name earlier. He's kind of the black sheep of the family. You see, Rachel isn't his first wife. He used to be married to this woman named Marissa, I think. But shortly after their daughter was born, he started having an affair with Rachel. It went on for two years, and then finally he abandoned his wife and child to go be with Rachel. He didn't even tell them he was leaving. He just left, moved in with Rachel, sent the divorce papers in the mail months later. Jesus. My mom was furious with Rachel. She couldn't understand how she could do something like that. But they're sisters, and eventually their relationship got patched up as best it could. And they're as okay as they can be. But my mom still absolutely hates Richard. Doesn't trust him at all. They just had a kid, and now she's just counting the days until he pulls the same thing on Rachel. That's terrible. My stomach churns at my fawning vision of Rachel being tarred by such a sleazy story. I can't believe she would do something like that either. And what if he does leave her for some new woman? What if the affair has already begun? I'm suddenly overcome with the urge to go warn her somehow. So, who do you think would have this much curiosity about this family? This family that was apparently so good so magnetic that a man could abandon his wife and young daughter to be a part of it. The daughter? If I remember the story correctly, I'd guess she's in high school, right about that age when these things really start gnawing at you. It looks to me like she was just trying to find out who the new wife was. I'm sure her mother never told her, and, well... The compulsion started spiraling out of control been there. Haven't we all? I gesture at the notebook and scatter sheets of paper on the counter to illustrate my point. So you don't know what the daughter's name is? And you're not sure about the ex-wife? Alana looks genuinely apologetic. I'm sorry, I don't. That's okay. You've been so much help already. Seriously, thank you. I know this is all really crazy. I'm sorry for deceiving you the last time I was here. I am. I've been feeling really awful about all of it. I'm just trying to make it right. It's okay, really. Don't worry about it. Do you want to keep any of this? I can write down the contact info for everyone I managed to find who's, you know, still alive. Obviously, you know your parents and your aunt and uncle, but, well, I don't know. I don't think you'd want to meet Ira. He's kind of an ass. But the artist, Sarah, she's cool, even though you're barely related. And, well, I don't know. You're even less related to Julius Kramer, but I think you like him. And I think he could use the company. I neatly copy out Sarah and Julius's information for her and start gathering my things. Why don't you add your info, too? Maybe once it's all over, we can get a drink and you can fill me in on everything. She writes her number down as she says this and hands it to me with a smile. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. I add my number to the list and slide it over. Well, thanks again. Listen... Before you go... Her face has fallen now. She looks serious, 
even pained. What? What is it? Your grandmother and your parents, they really did visit us that day. I just need you to believe that. The room was so full of love and so full of sorrow. But that deep kind of sorrow that's so painful because it's rooted in love, you know? When they told me what happened, well, I just don't think you should beat yourself up too much for trying to find a family. I think that this girl is going to be really grateful when she finds out what you did for her. I feel the tears welling up in my eyes, but before she can see them fall, I rush around the counter and pull her in for a hug. We hold each other, slightly swaying, until we hear the door opening. I break away and try to hide the quick wiping away of tears from my cheeks. Thank you for everything. I'll let you know when it's over. Alana smiles and nods and gives me a little wave goodbye. I turn and hurry toward the door. The woman who's come in looks at my watery eyes with what seems like satisfaction. Her face is wrought with pain, and my tears seem to assure her that she's come to the right place to try and fix that. As I open the door, she's asking Alana if she's free for a reading. I think about maybe coming back after I'm done for an honest reading this time. Dorothy and I are sitting at the dining room table, painting. Dorothy can't paint, not really, but she likes to sit with me and push paint around a piece of paper into semi-discernible shapes. She calls it art therapy. Look, look at this, how I'm making all these flowers red? That's because I'm fucking pissed off! Don't need to shell out $100 an hour to some hippie quack to tell me that. I'm working on a card. Inside is a letter to Julius, explaining everything and apologizing. Then I include the family tree, neatened up from Alana's scribblings with as much contact info as I've gathered, should he decide he needs it. I also include mine. I say I'd love to come visit him and the birds any time if he'd have me. I've written letters to Sarah, Rachel, and Ira, but I'm not sure if I can send them. Julius's is the only one that feels of great import. On the front, I'm painting more carefully than for any assignment I've been given. I don't have any reference materials in front of me, but I can remember it so perfectly. What are you coloring over there, a boy? A pigeon. Yeah, I swear to God, Anna, there's no one in the city who's been shit on by those goddamn boys more than me. I don't know what the hell I ever did to them. I thought that was supposed to be good luck. Ha! Right, luck. Clearly, I'm the luckiest person in New York. Ah, shit. I messed up my leaf. Now it looks like, well, now it looks like pigeon shit, I'll tell you what. Richard's daughter, Melanie, was easy to find. She was indeed a teenager, a senior in high school, and because of that, her entire life was available in public on the internet. I knew she was a waitress at a diner in Dumbo, but she had stopped just short of posting her schedule on Twitter. I'd slowly walked past the place twice already, peering in and looking for her swinging blonde ponytail. Richard's ex-wife was a shiksa goddess. I felt terrible for Melanie, but it kind of warmed my heart that he left her mom for a ball-busting Jew like Rachel. 
She hadn't been there either time, and I realized they probably gave the high school student the off shift, so I was planning on going back tomorrow afternoon, a Wednesday. I dropped Julius's card in the mail on the way. I wish I could tell you that I didn't go to a hole-in-the-wall print and copy shop and make a copy of every page of the notebook, but I can't. I wish I could tell you I didn't sit poised to tear out certain pages, my fake interview questions for Rachel, my sprawling free writes as I tried to piece things together, my rough draft of my email to Julius, Jeff's business card taped onto a page in the back, but I can't. However, I can tell you I left those pages intact. Let Melanie have a mystery of her own. Maybe one day she'll find me. I shudder to think of my story being uncovered in bits and pieces. She probably wouldn't want to bother tracking me down once she learned just a glimpse of it, but it seemed only fair. I considered writing her a little note, but all the versions of it I wrote in my head felt creepy. Instead, I painted a little pigeon, a crystal, a scarf, an easel, a cockroach, and a cup of coffee. The paper warped and the paint sunk through onto the next page at points, but it felt like a satisfying signature. Forget it! I'm starting over. Here, I'll be an abstract artiste. Dorothy rips another page out of my sketchbook with relish and begins tracing a swirling line around it. All right, watch. This is where the art comes in. She plunges her brush into a pool of orange paint and begins frantically scribbling over the line, practically erasing all traces of it and turning the tranquil simplicity of it all into something fiery and filled with rage. Did I ever tell you I used to hang with Helen Frankenthaler? What? No. Yeah. That's so cool. Eh. She was a real bitch. It only takes a few minutes for me to see Melanie through the window of the diner, unloading an armful of plates onto a table for a family. I head inside and the hostess smiles that particularly condescending hostess smile when they know you're about to ask for a table for one. Table for one? Yep, please. Right this way. She starts to lead me to the back of the room and a wave of panic rushes up my throat. Actually, could I sit by the window, please? I can't imagine there are too many waitresses on duty, but I wanted to at least be confident in my chances of winding up in Melanie's section. I'm not going to screw up my one chance to get this right. The hostess shrugs, spins on her heels, and leads me over to the booth by the window that's not occupied by the family. She drops the novel-sized plastic menu on the table in front of me and leaves. I peruse the pages, even though I know I'm going to wind up with a cheeseburger. It's just always fun to imagine myself as the person who'd come to a diner and get shrimp scampi or chicken frances. I think back to going to the diner with my friends when we were in high school, feeling impossibly adult, spending our own money that we had earned from our minimum wage part-time jobs. We'd all end up ordering fries, of course. Sometimes one of us would splurge on a chicken Caesar wrap if we were feeling particularly luxurious. We'd stay for hours, and, despite our genuinely best intentions, fuck up the calculation for the tip. God bless those waitresses. Even though I'm expecting her, even though this entire outing is predicated on this very moment, 
I'm still shocked when Melody steps up to my table as if nothing is special about this occasion. Hi, I'm Mel. I'll be your server. Can I get you started with anything to drink? Her voice drips with boredom and she hasn't looked at me yet. She stands with her pen raised over her pad, shifting back and forth on her feet, dropping one knee and then the other, as if she's doing an impatient and half-hearted merengue in place. Yeah, I'll have a Coke, please. And actually... But she's already left to get that for me. I wanted to order all at once. I keep changing my mind about whether I want this meal to drag out for a long time so I can savor my final moments with a notebook, or if I want it to be over as quickly as possible. When she returns with the Coke and looks like she's about to leave again, I blurt out my order loud and fast, stopping her in her tracks while she jots it down. Yes, I need to get through this. Rip it off like a band-aid. I hand her my menu and smile, staring her down, waiting for her to make eye contact, feel like perhaps we're having a moment, even if it's a forced customer service type one. But she only quickly glances at me as she takes the menu. I think I catch one corner of her mouth twitch a little in what I assume is the beginning of a smile, but it's gone too soon for me to know for sure. Melanie brings me my plate ten minutes later, and I start making my way through the fries, even though they're just a little too hot that the roof of my mouth is scalded every other bite. I keep my eyes locked on my phone, too worried that if I were to let them wander, I'd watch Melanie's every step. All I want is to look like every other hurried New Yorker dining alone on their lunch break before heading off to carry on whatever important or interesting or impactful work I do. She leaves me alone so much that, at one point, an annoyed-looking manager comes by my table to check up on me, asking if everything's all right as she rolls her eyes in the direction of Melanie, who is leaning against the counter by the kitchen doors, picking at her nails. I assure her everything's fine through my mouthful of cheeseburger. It's probably for the best that Melanie is a shitty waitress. I don't want my face burdened to her brain. As soon as I leave here, I want to disappear. My plate is empty, my stomach is reeling from how quickly I ate. Eventually, I catch Melanie's eyes across the room and make the little scribbling motion in the air to signal I want the check, which she comes over and plops onto my table unceremoniously. She waits a respectful amount of time before circling back and picking up my card, then time drags as I wait for her to return. When she finally does, she says, Have a good one. And I realize it's the first thing she said to me since she asked me what I'd be having. Something starts to tug at me as I watch her walk back to her post by the kitchen door, shuffling slowly along, her obvious boredom taking over every part of her. I calculate the tip and it suddenly hits me, this is the moment. I bring my bag into my lap and look down into it, the spine of the notebook staring back at me. I let out a big sigh, hesitating briefly as I begin to pull it out. It's over now. I hug it to my chest and then slide it onto the table. I stand and hurry out of the diner before I can change my mind. I find a spot in a doorway across the street. I can see through the window, but I'm receded enough from the sidewalk that I feel confident enough that Melanie wouldn't see me, at least not right away, if she were to look out onto the street. I watch as she comes up to the table to get the check. On autopilot, she nearly misses seeing the notebook as she spins away from the table. Thankfully, with one cartoonish double take, she stops and picks it up. She looks wildly around the diner, then towards the door. She starts to chase after me and then stops. I see her look down at the notebook. She glances over both her shoulders and then opens it. 
One of her hands shoots up to her mouth, and she starts flipping the pages faster and faster, her mouth dropping open. A huge grin breaks out across her face, and she starts running toward the door. I panic and start running down the street. I keep running and running and running until I've reached the bank of the East River, the Brooklyn Bridge looming over my head. I drop to my knees in the grass, panting, watching the water run past me, seeing the city stretching before me, feeling the tears starting to form. When I get back to my apartment, it feels impossibly still and quiet. I stand by the door, waiting for something wrong to reveal itself, but soon I hear the thump of Bastet jumping down off my bed and padding towards me for a greeting. I sit on the floor and let her climb into my lap and rub her face against my face, and I press my nose into her side so I can breathe her in. I wrap my arms around her and list more and more to the left until I'm slowly falling onto my side and I curl myself around her and let myself cry. I cry so hard and so long that it wears me out and I wake up several hours later without ever having really been aware that I'd fallen asleep. The apartment is dark and Bastet has long left my side, which makes lying on the floor in front of the door feel weird and pathetic when before it somehow did not. I peel myself off the floor, but once I'm standing, I realize I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Walking over to the kitchen feels right, but after standing there staring into my cupboards and then staring into the fridge and then looking down at the floor for a while, I decide I'm not hungry and I don't feel like eating. I head to my room and I stand in the center of my room running through my options in my head but I can't land on anything that seems appealing. I go to the living room and I look at all the boxes. Maybe doing something productive will help. Maybe today will be the day I unpack some of this, or at least organize it a little. When I pull the boxes sitting in front of the door to my grandmother's room into the center of the floor, I figure I've decided to start with those for this new unpacking venture. But instead I find myself not kneeling down to rip open the boxes but walking back over to the door. All at once, without appearing to have any control over what I've done, I see that I've opened the door, her door. The room seems to exhale as I open it, a sigh escaping past me. I expect a rush of emotions, but I feel eerily calm. I walk over to her bed and trace my fingers along her satin duvet cover embroidered with flowers. I pull it off and wrap it around me, despite the heat and the suffocating stale air in the room. I go over to her dresser, spray myself with her perfume, lotion my hands, carefully tilt the framed photos of my parents and me as a baby downwards. I open all the drawers and leave them open. I sink my hand into her sweaters, 
stiff and scratchy as I remember them. I head to her bookshelf. She had terrible taste in books, all paperback mysteries and romances. I take one off the shelf, flip through it, let it fall to the ground. I turn to the closet and open the door. Shelves full of neatly organized shoes are on the floor, and her dresses hang neatly on the rod, and the upper shelves are crammed with boxes and folders and storage bins, apparently the one disorderly area of her entire life. I shrug the duvet off my shoulders, and it drops to the floor around my feet. I start taking her dresses down. I can't tell you why, but it feels good to tear them from the hangers and fling them behind me. I bend down and sweep the shoes off the shelves in one go. I pull the shelves out and use them as a step stool to reach the top of the closet, and I begin pulling things down with wild abandon. Her things crash onto my shoulders and my face, threatening to topple me over, but I stand strong until the shelves are empty and everything is in a chaotic pile spread across the floor. I step off the shelves and turn and drop to my knees and dive in. I find years and years of records of bills paid in various contracts. I find three diaries, and when I open each one to a random page, it is too heartbreakingly mundane for me to pry any further, but I tell myself one day I'll gather the strength to read them. I've littered what's likely to be hundreds of photos around the room, ranging from black and white to grainy 90s color to what looks like photos printed off of Facebook onto printer paper and then carefully cut out. There's a scrapbook that I vaguely remember helping her put together when I stayed with her for a summer when I was nine, and I was told my dad was away for a long business trip in Europe, but I later understood was actually what they would later call a trial separation that ultimately didn't pan out. Ticket stubs to the Museum of Natural History and the Central Park Zoo are captioned with my loopy handwriting, crayon rubbings of leaves and a comic strip detailing our trip to Coney Island, a page ripped out of a Disney coloring book. And then there was a fraying brown accordion folder. I pulled its elastic cord aside and it fell open, newspaper clippings bursting from one section and documents of my adoption, school records, medical records spilling from the others. I know what the clippings are before seeing the headlines, but I pull them out anyway. I had been coming home from a friend's house, worried that I'd be in trouble for not getting back until 40 minutes after my curfew. We hadn't been doing anything bad. I had just lost track of time. There wasn't anything to notice from the front door. They had used the back door, of course, so I had spent 10 minutes letting myself get more and more anxious about getting inside, expecting that as soon as they heard the key in the lock, they'd come flying out to meet me in a rage, even though that was absolutely nothing like how my parents had ever acted before. When I finally opened the door and went inside, I thought the silence was either them being so angry with me they couldn't speak, or that they had by some divine intervention decided to go to sleep early, and I was about to get away with everything. If I hadn't been tiptoeing slowly down the hall to try and avoid any creaking of the floorboards to announce my arrival home, perhaps I wouldn't have noticed my mother's foot sticking out from the living room in my peripheral vision. Without knowing yet to be frightened, I turned and stepped toward it, thinking maybe she had fallen. And there she was, sprawled across the floor, 
her right hand just barely reaching my father's shoes where he was lying on his back, their two pools of blood blending into one giant stain in the gray carpet. It had been a break-in gone awry by a person who had planned to be a thief, but not a murderer. When the headlines started to hit, he turned himself in within weeks. He was 19, just a few years older than me at the time, and had borrowed his dad's gun just in case he needed to scare someone coming home unexpectedly while he was looking for something to sell. He swore he had thought the house was empty. He swore he had just planned on scaring them. He swore he didn't even realize he was actually pulling the trigger until he'd already fired the six shots in a panic. I believe he's still in prison. There are many long talks with my grandparents over whether it was better for me to uproot my life at 16, right when I was preparing for applying to college and saying goodbye to the friends I'd had since I was in kindergarten, or for me to stay in the house where my own screams were still echoing. My grandmother decided the answer was to buy a new carpet and move in with me, leaving my grandfather to tend to the apartment in New York. She wanted me to maintain whatever kind of normalcy I possibly could, and she went back to visit him once a week during school hours so that I would never come home to an empty house. He got sick the summer before I left for school, and I insisted I didn't need a babysitter anymore. That's what I called her, and said she could spend more time with him if he needed. She alternated weeks between us, and during my off weeks I pretended I wasn't terrified, and I pretended I didn't need her, and by the time I left for school, those lies had stuck. I have been carrying around these lies about myself ever since. Her death threatened to expose them all. But surely, if I lock away my guilt and my memories and the all-knowing eye of myself in this room with her, I'll never be found out. I have been oscillating between feeling grotesquely raw and completely hidden, unsure of which is worse. But now, surrounded by all of this tangible proof of who I am, suddenly all I want is to be seen. This is a city where we walk among the many timelines of ourselves simultaneously. Every day we walk past remnants of who we used to be and what we used to have, alongside what we could have had and what we dream we can have still. There are the places that we choose to be who we wish we could be, and the places that reveal who we undeniably are. It's quick to envelop you in a lie if you need to be, and I have taken great comfort in that. But I have tried on enough lives for now. I just want to live my own. I will face this brave new world tomorrow. Tonight, I will wrap myself up in this blanket and fall asleep on my grandmother's floor. When I wake up, I'll begin packing and unpacking. This room would make a nice studio, and once I have a proper studio, I can really get to work. I will finish my book by the end of next year. I will leave the bed to keep it partially as a guest bedroom, because one day I will have guests. Since the living room will be cleared, I can finally decorate it to my liking. I will buy a couch made in this century. I will invite Dorothy over for dinner, but first I will teach myself how to cook something impressive. If she likes it, I will make it for Jeff. I won't be ashamed to have him over. I will get my hair cut at the cool salon. I will buy myself a new bag. I will text Alana and will go to a bar that maybe we'll go out dancing. 
I will get insurance and then find a therapist who takes my insurance. I can see my brand new life playing out so perfectly in my mind. I will do things differently this time. I will do them the right way. This is what I tell myself, and it feels good to believe it to be true. Final chapter of This Used to Be the Place, Chapter 8, Hannah, Grandmother. It was written, read, and produced by me, Celeste Coffin. Additional voice work was provided by Ellis Rodenis and Ramya Hip. Music is courtesy of Eva Schlegel. Thanks for listening to the first season of This Used to Be the Place. Now here's what you've all been waiting for. If you liked what you've heard, please rate and review and help spread the word. Thank you to all the actors who helped bring these words off the page, and thanks again to you for listening.